Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to look at the book of Galatians in the context of the Jerusalem Council. We'll read together from Acts chapter 14, verse 26, all the way through to 15, verse 35. And in this we'll see they've gathered back at Antioch after the first after the first missionary journey. And then they're going to be troubled. And we looked at the origins of the Jerusalem Council last week. But as you read through here, we're also going to see the debate that took place at the council and then the decree of the council. And so let's get our minds into the word and pay close attention to God's word because this is God's holy and infallible word. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to commend them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, 
from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Commentary says, even when things go on very smoothly and pleasantly in a state or in a church, it is folly to be secure and to think the mountains stand strong and cannot be moved. Some uneasiness or other will arise, which is not foreseen, cannot be prevented, but must be prepared for. If ever there was a heaven upon earth, surely it was in the church at Antioch at this time, when there were so many excellent ministers there and blessed Paul, blessed Paul being among them, building up that church in her most holy faith. But there, but here we have their peace disturbed and differences arising. Recall the scriptures teach us that there must be divisions. They must occur. First Corinthians 11, Paul writing says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together for the better, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So one of the big things that we do with a sermon like this is understand about division and prepare for it. Learn from what God shows, shows us through this experience here. Last week, we looked at the Jerusalem Council origins, verses 1 through 6. A wise local church deals with heresy. We see how they opposed it. And when there was no resolution, they went together to Jerusalem to get the regional church involved. Today, we're going to look at the book of Galatians and the Jerusalem Council controversy. Next week, we'll look at the, how the regional church settles the, the matter, their debate that they go through. And then the week after that, we'll see how they communicate clearly with their decree, their written letter that was sent and the individuals they sent with them. And we'll learn from that as well. Today, I want you to put your seatbelt on 
And I want you to take up the place of a Gentile pagan in the first century, about A.D. 49. Imagine you've been raised in paganism, polytheistic paganism. was all kinds of unrighteous, immoral things taking place in those pagan temples and in that pagan culture. And you live probably in Lystra or Derby or Iconium or Pisidian Antioch there in southern Galatia, to whom the book of Galatians is written. And you are receiving the book of Galatians and you're hearing it for the first time. You've come to Christ. You've believed the gospel through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas as they came through your town. But then others have come in and troubled you and have unsettled your soul, telling you that you have to add these other things to the gospel in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian. So your soul has been troubled. You've started to believe it. You've begun to question Paul and wonder what's going on with him. You've become confused and unsettled by these false teachers. And do you know that this book, this letter would have been read all at once to that church in a public setting. So put your seatbelt on today because you're going to hear the entire book of Galatians as we go through today's sermon. And I want you to hear it as those who've been troubled by this first great church controversy and consider what it would have meant to them to hear these things. And you'll see there the outline of the sermon. I won't go through each of those, but that's what it's going to look like as we go through. Before we do that, there's a couple of things I want to say, emphasizing what we learned from last week, which are necessary prerequisites to understand some of the key points from today. This whole thing that we're looking at, big picture in this Jerusalem council, is going to demonstrate to us the necessity of total reliance upon Christ and his word and his spirit and his church to deal with controversies. We've already said that divisions will occur and we need to remember that the visible church is the pillar and the ground of truth. There is an authority given to God's church to solve these controversies. Divisive men with heretical teaching must be immediately, publicly and courteously opposed. We saw that last week. And yet we also saw that opposing heresy requires knowing the gospel of the Bible. We have to be confident in the gospel of the Bible. We need to also, and this is an important point for today as we go through, understand the distinction between transient ceremonial law, which is restorative, and eternal moral law, which is the reflection of God's perfect righteousness. So we break God's law and we need a way back to God. Christ supplies that. Christ alone in his death upon the Christ on the cross supplies that. But the Old Testament restorative law, all those sacrificed animals and everything attending with it were a type of Christ and a way for the worshipers then to return to God. Wise local churches connect with and submit to the regional church, knowing that they need one another, especially in in the situation of conflict. And even in the midst of conflict, wise Christians will be encouragers and they'll be encouraged and they won't give way to discouragement or to despair. We need to watch out for the prideful use of Scripture, likely what was happening from these heretics. And it will lead to foolishness and church conflict and unnecessary divisions. And instead, we want to embrace humble submission to Scripture, which will lead us into wisdom and church unity and help us to prepare for and respond properly to the certain conflicts and divisions that will threaten us in the future. So moving into the text today. First of all, a reminder, the 
Acts background to this. Peter, I remember his vision to kill and eat unclean animals. In Acts chapter 10, a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. Peter was given a direct revelation as an apostle that the Old Testament ceremonial law had been done away with. And then after the conversion of Cornelius, so Peter sees Cornelius, a Gentile, converted, directly receiving the spirit, not becoming a Jew first. And then after that, there's a controversy. The apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then in verses 4 through 17, in that section, Peter explains to them what happened. That God blessed the preaching of the gospel to these Gentiles' hearts and gave them faith. And the Spirit was poured out upon them and they did not become Jews first. Peter explained that to them. And then when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So it seemed as though that had been already dealt with and laid to rest. But no, no, no. Note here, brothers and sisters, heresies occur and reoccur and reoccur and reoccur. And this shows us the necessity of vigilance combined with biblical and historical knowledge. And and by implication points to the necessity of the men of God trained up in the scriptures and in the history of the church to be able to identify and spot these heresies and stand against them because there's nothing new under the sun. The devil just keeps recycling them in different lingo throughout the ages. So what happens first in the book of Galatians? Paul lays out the problem. Listen, remember, you're those Galatian Gentiles in the first century, new believers, just coming to Christ, easily swayed. Paul's responding to what's happened to them. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant. Of Christ. So the problem is very clear. The Galatians are turning away from the Lord who called them in the grace of Christ. They're turning away from the grace of God and they're turning to a false gospel that has been preached to them. And these heretics are troubling the Galatians, desiring to pervert the gospel of Christ. And this is reminiscent of what happens later at the Jerusalem Council. In verse 24 of Acts 15, they put it this way. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls. So these heretics, they trouble the Galatians. False teachings trouble your soul, unsettle your soul and leave you troubled. Whereas the truth of God from his word when it comes in 
we're settled, we're established, and there's tranquility in our souls. And this is a very severe problem. This is the highest level kind of problem. Anyone who preaches a false gospel is accursed, Paul says. Now, accursed is the Greek word there, anathema. And it's a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed. And if an animal, it's to be slain. Therefore, it's a person or thing doomed to destruction, devoted to the direst of woes. You can't make a greater mistake than to preach or believe a false gospel. Webster's 1828 talks about the use of anathema throughout the history of the church. Excommunication along with curses. Not just excommunication, but excommunication with curses. Hence a curse or a denunciation by the church accompanying the excommunication. And this species of excommunication was practiced in the ancient churches against notorious offenders. All churches were warned not to receive them. All magistrates and private persons were admonished not to harbor or maintain them. And priests were enjoined not to converse with them or to attend their funerals. This is as bad as it gets. This is purified language of hell coming forth upon the earth to deceive and to mislead. So it's no wonder that this comes forth so early in the history of the church as the first great heresy. Next, Paul defends his apostleship. So it appears that heretics not only taught this false gospel, but also they attacked Paul's apostleship undermining his authority and setting up great potential for division between Paul and the other apostles. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's verse 1. Now jumping to verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. And so Paul wants these Galatians to know about his past. He wants them to understand his apostolic authority. And he makes it clear that he is an apostle of equal authority to the original apostles of Acts chapter 1. Those who were with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry are no greater authorities than the Apostle Paul. And his apostleship does not come from man or through a man. Apparently they had tried to imply that he just went up there and learned from the apostles. No, it's not received from man. He did not immediately go and confer with flesh and blood after his conversion on the Damascus Road. 
He did not immediately go up to the Jerusalem apostles. He went for three years alone into Arabia. What is the source of his apostleship? Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is through, the text says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the essence of the source of apostolic authority, is divine revelation. So Paul was made an apostle by God. He wants them to understand this. He wants to wash away the undermining that has taken place of the gospel that he taught them. So note the emphasis upon the resurrection and Paul's apostolic call. This is power. This is not from God. This is, this is from God, not from men. And it is to be taken with the highest level of authority, what he spoke to them. And he gives them evidence. He says, I was a, a persecutor before all of this. And then suddenly he's converted through God's grace, taught of God, not by the apostles, taught of Christ by God's grace. What did he do after his conversion? He went to Arabia for three years. He didn't go see the apostles. He was with God being taught by the Lord. And then he returns. And after briefly being in Damascus, he went to Jerusalem and he says for only 15 days. And he didn't interact greatly with the other apostles except James, the brother of Jesus. And this corresponds to what we saw already in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30, where we see that uh, Paul's conversion from Luke's descriptive angle. And then he went to Syria and Cilicia, he tells us here, and was not known by face to the Judean churches. And this matches Acts 9.30, where he was run out of Jerusalem and they took him up to the port and he took a ship up to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. So he's there ministering during this time, he says. And those churches, they don't even know him. They don't know him. The churches in Judea don't know him by face. So all of this is evidence that Paul is giving to these deceived or almost deceived Galatians to say no. Listen to me. I am an apostle of God. And these other people have deceived you about me. So note a couple of things here. Those who teach a false gospel will also usually implement personal attacks to undermine the credibility of the teacher whom they are opposing. And they will do things to pressurize relationships toward conflict and toward division, toward controversy, toward disagreement. This is why they're called heretics. The word heretic means to divide. Most importantly, to divide us from God, but also dividing us from one another. Next, Paul describes his unity with the Jerusalem leaders. The next section in Galatians 2, he wants the church there. He wants, you're putting yourself in their shoes, he wants you to, to see, no, I'm not at odds with these apostles. We have one and the same message because we all got it from one and the same Savior and Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. 
For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been given to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So unity with the apostles in Jerusalem is what he's laying out here. There's no division between us. We're not giving different messages. James, Peter, and John perceived the grace of God that had been given to Paul. And so they gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. They confirmed, they commended and said, yes, this is the gospel that we've all received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And sensing the divine momentum, the, excuse me, the divisive momentum of the false teachers, Paul gives clear evidence here that his gospel is the same gospel as the Jerusalem apostles. It is not two different messages. That's what these deceiving false teachers had tried to bring into the minds of these new converts. Now, there's also strong evidence here, the strongest form that they agreed with Paul regarding circumcision at that time. Titus is a Gentile believer and Paul brings him along with him and he was not forced to receive circumcision. So there'd been some sort of controversy that came up And Paul, when he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, this is in conjunction with the Acts chapter 11 famine that took place. And they go there to bring the relief. This occurs during that visit almost for sure. Apparently, there'd been some controversy about this already. And Paul says, all right, let's solve this once and for all. See his wisdom. He's trying to put this heresy to rest. Even saying, all right, Titus, come on, you're going to Jerusalem with us to have an actual test case to prove the point. Not just an academic agreement. Here's Titus, still uncircumcised. This proves that they agreed with me about this question at that time. And this occurred 14 years after Paul's conversion. And as I said already, it corresponds to the famine relief visit. So this is Paul's second visit up to Jerusalem since his conversion. Now, we need to understand some things about false teachers. And, you know, brothers and sisters, if you'll just take a peek inside your own heart and who you could be. Apart from Christ, I shouldn't have to persuade you that there are people like this in the world. Just imagine yourself apart from Christ's grace in your life. But there are people like this. And sometimes we have a hard time believing that there are really people like this. False brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So these are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are pretenders. These are spies. And they're seeking to eliminate liberty. The liberty from what? Freedom from what? Liberty from the ceremonial law and bring them back into bondage to the ceremonial law. And remember, when I say ceremonial law, we're distinguishing that from the eternal moral law of God that we see in the Ten Commandments that we read every Sunday together that demonstrates to us our lack of love for God and for one another. The moral law is the expression of the law of love for God and for others. But the ceremonial law given at Sinai in the Mosaic covenant 
was a transient, temporary picture of Christ's death upon the cross. Well, these Jews are trying to bring the Gentiles into the bondage of the ceremonial law. And they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, Jesus warned about false teachers and how to spot them. And this is part of preparing for these types of divisions. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. <coughs> so the principle here is it can take time to spot these wolves. They will seem like faithful church members. That's what sheep's clothing means. They will seem like faithful church members, but time will reveal them and that will be revealed via their bad fruit. Now, Paul goes on to tell the church there, churches there in Galatia about how he fought with Peter over this disagreement. And this is in the rest of Galatians chapter 2. And this occurred in the setting of Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Okay? So this is more detail about that no small dissension that is mentioned in Acts chapter 15. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. So I'm going to stop there. So Peter had been in Antioch for a time already. That peaceful time after the first missionary journey. Peter had apparently come and was there with them at that time. He was there when the men came from Judea and stirred up the church. And he had been eating with the Gentiles. Of course, it shouldn't surprise us because he had gotten the vision from heaven. He had seen what happened with Cornelius. He had argued in favor of this. So he's living it out. But then something happens in, this, in Peter's mind when these Jews come from Jerusalem. And Paul is just like, no. And this is what Paul says to him to oppose him. And he says it in front of everyone, right there in front of the whole church, to Peter. To resist him. This, this fast. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Remember, he's still talking to Peter. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside 
the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So he makes his opposition as clear, crystal clear as it could be. If we go down this path, then we are making Christ's death a vain thing. As I said, this is the event described to us in the first two verses of chapter 15. Peter had been there a long time. And then these false teachers come and they unsettle even his soul. So I want us to pause and consider the power of these religious and cultural forces. Peter, who denied Christ three times and been restored and had seen his own failure, goes through another failure at this time. He had been with Christ, seen the resurrected Christ, learned from him, watched him be ascended. And he goes through this failure again. So we need to consider the power of the forces around them and around us. Jewish religious practices plus the persecution of the zealots. So they've got this whole long hundreds of years of generational momentum towards these ceremonial law practices. Their lives were built around it. They felt like they were being unfaithful if they stopped doing it. Plus, non-believing Jews called zealots had ramped up their persecution during the years prior to this time frame and they were going around and they were lynching Jews who had fellowship with Gentiles. It was a major, major persecution underway within the Jewish church of that time. And so folks who had come to Christ, Jews who had come to Christ, they were also subject to this persecution if they were fellowshipping with Gentiles. Great Forces were at work here. Now, Peter, he'd seen this triple vision from God that was confirmed confirmed by the conversion of Cornelius and his household, right? See, all of this is, brothers and sisters, to say, if you think you're standing firm, please examine yourself. Because look at Peter. He had even argued the true gospel when challenged about being with Gentiles. He had argued the right position successfully, but here... He's pulled away from the truth when these false teachers came from Jerusalem. Somehow, what they said and what they did got him. And Barnabas went with him, along with the others. It was a horrible thing that happened to the church at Antioch on that day. So I want you to consider this. If Peter and Barnabas and all these, all these faithful brethren up until this point could be drawn away from the gospel by powerful peer pressure fears... How much more so for you and me? <clears throat> How much more so for you and me? Paul preaches the gospel to Peter before the whole church and the false teachers in order to immediately resist. And here are some key elements of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one, not even Jews, can keep the law of God, moral or ceremonial. No one can keep the law of God. No one, next, can be justified by the works of the law, moral or ceremonial. In no way can you keep the law well enough to avoid judgment. In no way can you keep the restorative law well enough to provide for your own satisfaction before God. Justification, that is forgiveness of our sins, comes to us, brothers and sisters, only by faith in Christ. And that faith itself comes to us as a gift of God's grace. It is the only way that we are forgiven 
of our sins. <clears throat> now, in addition, we see Paul referencing how to deal with our sin after justification. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So this gets into how are we sanctified? It is not via the law, brothers and sisters. We are not sanctified by the law of God. Neither the moral law nor the ceremonial law can sanctify us. Paul says here, we live to God, not through the law, any portion of it, but we live to God by Christ himself living in us and through us by faith in him. In this way, this is how we remain in God's grace. This is how we stay in God's grace. Not finding righteousness, not seeking it. We can't find it. Not going after righteousness through the law of God, moral or ceremonial, but only by our union with Christ. Our only righteousness is by our union with Christ. <clears throat> now, you should be wondering about God's law when you hear this. Where does it fit in? And Paul knows that because we're going to get to it. So I want us to note first, though, that this heresy attacks not only our justification, but also our sanctification. The gospel of God's grace for us as believers is from beginning to end only by faith in Christ. And this is what Paul wants to get into the minds of these new believing Gentiles there in southern Galatia, Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Iconium in around AD 49. So they're listening and Paul goes on. He's going to teach them about the difference between being a son of faith or a slave of works. And in this context, he's going to teach them about the purpose of the law. He's going to answer those questions that have arisen about God's law. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And as a quick tangent, that word bewitched is probably getting to some demonic elements in play here that have supported this deception. Going on, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So you hear the distinction there between justification and sanctification. Paul's bringing both of them out. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? That's the question, right? It's been in our minds since he's been talking about this. It was added because of transgressions Till the seed should come to who the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So it was added. The moral law wasn't added, it was already in place. This is definitely, definitely focusing us upon the ceremonial law. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one, for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. Though he is master of all. But is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. Through Christ. So he points them to this concept of being sons of faith. And he points to Abraham, who had faith 430 years before the law was given. So clearly, the promise cannot come through the law, it comes through faith. Justification is receiving the Spirit of God only by faith in Christ crucified. He makes it abundantly clear. And then sanctification talks about how we are made perfect by faith, receiving the Spirit of God. So we continue to receive the Spirit of God. And our need in sanctification is more faith so that we can receive the Spirit, the life of Christ in us more and more fully. And it is these sons of faith who are the only sons of Abraham. Abraham was a Christian. The gospel was preached to him beforehand. And all who trust in Christ are being like Abraham. All who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ without circumcision. 
Here, Paul points them to the new covenant replacement initiatory rite. It's not circumcision, it's baptism. And all who are baptized into Christ and put on Christ, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. You don't have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. We're saved from the curse of the law by Christ's death on the cross. It's the only way that we're saved from that curse. And it is a curse to try to find your righteousness or your forgiveness from the law of God. And so now, brothers and sisters, because of this, and Paul's going to tenderly call them into this, we have the spirit of the Son of God dwelling in our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, as his beloved children. If you do not know this Abba, Father relationship with God, this tender, childlike faith of affection, it, it may be because you're trying to find righteousness in the law. It may be because you are placing your faith where it doesn't belong. For those who are sons of faith will know this indwelling of the Spirit and will know this joyful relationship with God the Father. Without this, though, we're slaves of works and under the curse, and you will try to rely upon the law of God, ceremonial or moral, for justification or sanctification. And, and, you know, we do this. We'll pick some aspect of morality that we can keep and we'll force it on everyone else and we'll treat it like it's the most important thing in the world because we can do it. But the inheritance and the blessings are lost. The Abba Father relationship is lost and we're brought into bondage under the elements of the law. And that's a description of the ceremonial law that he's pointing to there. So he calls them to faith. He says, don't listen to these false teachers who are trying to take you back into bondage to the ceremonial law. Bondage to try to save yourself. Receive your father's forgiveness in Christ and rejoice in him crying out, Abba, Father. Warning them against being enslaved again. But surely they would wonder, what is the purpose of the law? And here it is. And this is particularly a focus Upon the ceremonial law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So, this is the Sinai covenant in view here. And because of transgressions, you can tell how that particularly points to the need to be restored. Because the moral law of God has been broken. Because you are under the guilt of sin, because you are under the stain of sin and the doom and the dread of the future wrath of God upon you, the ceremonial law is given, the restorative law is given, and the grace of God is brought before their eyes in all of these sacrifices that took place, the daily sacrifices and all the feasts that point to Christ. And again, this idea added points to the ceremonial law because the moral law predates the Sinai covenant. The Ten Commandments summarizing the moral law were known prior to Sinai. Now, the case laws that were given to clarify the Ten Commandments in the Sinai covenant were a gracious help from God to help us know how to apply His moral law to our lives. So they needed a way to know their sins had been atoned for before God. And this whole system showed them that God was making a way back. 
God was making a way back. And it was until the seed should come. And so Christ fulfills all the requirements of the ceremonial law. Paul is fighting with every bit of his rhetorical powers to bring these beloved new believers back away from this bondage. And he gives them this tender appeal versus the selfish zealots. Listen to this. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by which nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. It is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Can you hear Paul's heart appealing to these new believers that are being threatened by this false teaching? You received me as an angel, even as Christ Jesus. He's trying to remind them of the bond of love that God had given to them, that these these deceivers had come in and attacked their relationship, undermining, oh, Paul, maybe he doesn't really love you. That kind of thing. So he's trying to re-strengthen that bond with them in this letter. If possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Remember your love for me. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. So what is Paul's labor based upon his motive? What's the motive of every faithful minister until Christ is formed in you until Christ is formed in you? What a great prayer we can pray for one another until Christ is formed in you. But the zealots are selfish. They court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you, exclude you that you may be zealous for them. So so this is a a tendency that we'll see in all the false teachers here and elsewhere is selfishness. They want others to be zealous for them. They want the preeminence. They want the focus. They must increase. Everybody else must decrease. He goes on and he gives them the example of Isaac versus Ishmael. He's already pointed to Abraham to instruct them that he was a Christian 430 years before the Sinai covenant came. Now he's referring to Isaac and Ishmael also prior to the Sinai covenant. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, 
are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So he's telling them again, they are sons of faith and they are free. They're being compared to Abraham, faithful Abraham, to Sarah and to Jerusalem above and to Isaac, the child of promise. He's saying this is who we are. And they're born of the spirit, not born according to the flesh. Those who are the sons of bondage, who are bound up to this, are only born according to the flesh like Ishmael and Hagar and the Jerusalem below the current church at that time. He's saying the whole thing was in bondage. What's the outcome going to be? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. This again shows us the severity of this mistake. Brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And you can imagine there were believing Jews in the midst of these Gentiles there in southern Galatia. Because, you know, he went to the synagogues, remember? So those Jews may have also probably were also drawn away. And so he needed to grab those Jews back as well through the scripture, showing them, hey, and then they would bring the Gentiles back as well. Brothers and sisters, we need to walk in the spirit. How do we how do we keep this law? How do we love this law? How do, how do we live out this law? Paul answers it clearly in Galatians five, and it's such a beautiful section that shows us what the life of faith in Christ looks like. Walking in the spirit is what it's called. And we have liberty from this bondage to the law, but to live out the law from our hearts. And we'll see this phrase faith working through love. That is such a great way to understand our lives as Christians. Faith working through love. This truly benefits. This truly avails. Not circumcision. What truly is beneficial is faith in Christ overflowing unto works of love. And that's law keeping. And so we have this liberty from the law as our hope of justification or sanctification. We're set free from that. And in this liberty, we're brought into the life of faith working through love. If there's one phrase you could really get in, faith working through love, faith working through love. And this is fulfilling the law of God to love our neighbors as ourselves. So it leads to this life of love. It loves and obeys God's moral law out of gratitude and love toward God. We're not trying to be made righteous. We're not trying to make ourselves righteous as we walk in the law of love. We want to serve God. We want to say thank you to him. Listen to how Paul puts it in chapter five. These Galatians, hopefully they're being pulled free. They're being brought back into the right way of thinking. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So brothers and sisters, can you see the simplicity of the Christian life that Paul's trying to lay out for these Galatian believers? If you have faith in Christ, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, Christ himself living in and through you, you walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you hate the flesh. You hate the lusts of the flesh. All those lawless deeds that are described there, you come to hate them. And at the same time, you come to love the path of the fruit of the Spirit. This beautiful, beautiful example of what life with God is supposed to look like. I'm not going to read that list again, but I do want to say that lawlessness is clearly rejected. Some might, some who I believe misunderstand Galatians and try to say that the moral law of God is no longer to be our guide um, are, are going to argue that our position uh, would make the law of God more than it should be, right? It's going to make it more than it should be. But no, we are going to turn away from these horrible things and walk in these beautiful things, right? And so that's the way it works. Not looking to the law to be forgiven, not looking to the law to sanctify us. We're looking to walk in the spirit and in that we will love our neighbors as ourselves. And this comes to his concluding statements in chapter six, where really the summary here is boasting in the cross of Christ and the 
obvious contrast there would be boasting and law-keeping, which was what we see in the Pharisees and those in their lineage who come after them. And may we not, may we not be like them. Paul also in this section gives some practical considerations about how to help people out of sin and how to understand that you will reap what you've sown. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. <clears throat> Amen. So those churches in southern Galatia would have heard these words, listening to it read aloud under in less than an hour, and would have heard Paul's response to the false teaching. And what a glory for us to have it today, to be able to see these same trends. Again, we see the selfish motive of the false teachers. They're not there to see Christ formed in anyone. They just want to avoid persecution. They want to have the preeminence and they want to avoid persecution. <clears throat> and Paul's summary of this whole debate is boiled down to the cross, brothers and sisters. And there's very few heresies that don't, in some regard, involve the cross. But this one centers on the cross. What happened there? What occurred there? And the answer is the entire ceremonial system was undone. Jesus said, it is finished. And yes, of course, he was referring to the sin of his people and the wrath of God upon his people, but also referencing the utter irrelevance from that point forward of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament ceremonial law. God forbid that I should boast, in the, that I sh should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. He takes their mind off of the focus upon the question of circumcision. And he points to the cross of Christ, which answers all of their questions. And the world being crucified to Paul 
and Paul crucified to the world. How does that happen? Through the cross. He sees everything through the cross. He sees everything through the cross. And, and he wants the whole world to see him through the cross. And that's what every Christian should be thinking. The cross is where we go to find all that we need to be forgiven of our sins and to be sanctified as well. There must be no reliance upon the law of God for our justification or for our sanctification. There must only be full and uncorrupted reliance upon Christ's death. It's our only hope, brothers and sisters, for being saved and our only hope for being sanctified. The law of God cannot provide us forgiveness of sins. The law of God cannot provide us the heart that we need to obey God. The law of God cannot provide us the power that we need to obey the law of God. Brothers and sisters, it is only by faith in Christ that we can be forgiven and renewed in holiness. And this is faith working through love as we walk in the Spirit. There's a few principles that I do want to emphasize to us before we close. I'm thankful to have gotten through this so far in a relatively timely fashion. I'm going to continue to make a list of these principles as we go through this, like I did for last week's sermon. So first of all, um, let's think through the whole, the big picture of preparing for division and preparing for conflict, preparing for controversy, okay? There'll be an ever-decreasing number of false brethren in the visible church over time. We know this through the tares. We're told that the tares will be mixed in amongst the wheat in that great parable. These tares take up resources. They're not necessarily malicious. But the wolves are different. These are different kind of false brethren. They're malicious and they're usually quickly harmful. You know, how long can a wolf sit around in a sheep before taking a bite? Not very long. And so will we know them by their fruit? Do we walk in the spirit well enough to know what love looks like? And a lot of times they'll use gossip and undermining and casting doubt in their work. Next, false gospels will occur and reoccur throughout history. And so we need to be vigilant and we need to be studying our scriptures and making ourselves wise in God's word so that we can spot these things. We need to see that new believers are especially vulnerable to heresies. You know, I consider myself a new believer. I think that most of us here, not all of us, but most of us are first generation believers, not raised up from infancy in the faith. And I think we need to beware and be aware in that of how vulnerable we are to these things. Take a humble approach to this. Next, false teachers of false gospels are accursed and the visible church is to pass public judgment on them. And this will require vigilance and courage. Next, false teachers will use deception and gossip to undermine faithful teachers. So we need to understand what gossip is and we need to learn how to refuse gossip. And I was talking to 
Brother Terry the other day, and it's about time for the gossip sermon again, which we aim to give on an annual basis, but don't usually give it annually. But it seems like it fits in where we are right now. Gossip destroys relationships. Gossip destroys families. Gossip destroys churches. Gossip destroys communities. It is a poison. And so we need to understand what gossip is and learn how to refuse it. Next, false teachers are often pretenders and spies with selfish motives. And so the idea here again is to um, know them by their fruits. Um, They'll they'll look very convincing as nice um, members of churches may even come with transfer letters. Um, But it's their own experiences with one another that God grants us trust over time. False teachers will create pressurized relationships leading to conflict and potential division. We need to spot this and understand this is when, when it is happening and learn how to be a peacemaker. Learn how to be a peacemaker with courtesy and courage to work through this properly the way that Paul did. Apostolic authority comes directly from God via revelation, but that office is done. It passed away and the authority is now vested in Holy Scripture So do you love God's word? Do you love God's word? Like, okay, if you could sit down with Moses and you could just learn from him, would you be there? If you could sit down with Ezra and just learn from him, would you be there? Or Samuel or David or Jeremiah or Isaiah or the other prophets or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or Jesus himself? Would you be there? When you open your book that God has given to you, his word, the Bible, you should have that kind of anticipation. Love God's word. In regards to dealing with controversial matters, wise ministers will strive to put controversy to rest quickly and in unity. Okay, so they, they don't they don't want they don't want division and they don't want delay. So they're going to seek clarity very quickly. They're going to seek to solve it as quick as possible. So this is wisdom in the midst of controversy that will be filled with love and humility. I really, really do commend to you the book Peacemakers by Ken Sandy on this topic. Brothers and sisters, beware of the great, great, great power of peer pressure. This requires tremendous humility to just acknowledge, hey, you know what? I'm prone to this. I can make bad decisions because I'm being pressured by the people around me. I can justify all kinds of bad decisions. We need to identify these forces in our own lives. What are the peer pressure elements in your life? Uh, I'll tell you some that I've observed, okay, that I have seen harm families. I'll put it this way. You don't really know who you are until you finished raising your kids. Okay? You'll come into parenting with some ideas that you believe about raising your kids. And if you're in, influenced by peer pressure, you'll end up with different beliefs by the time they leave the house. And why is that? Because maybe you can stand the peer pressure yourself But when you see your children being mocked and not having the number of friends that you want them to have, this is a very powerful 
peer pressure in your life as a parent. And so children, children, please listen carefully. All of you, even the youngest ones, listen carefully. Love your siblings. Love the people inside your home. And enjoy what God has given you in the Christian biblical culture inside your home. Flourish in those relationships that he has given to you there. Do not allow yourself to be drawn into discontentment and the belief that you're missing out because you are not. You are feasting in a beautiful world inside a biblical and Christian home. Okay? Please, parents, understand the glory of what God has given to you by having a Christian and biblical home in which to raise up your children. There are others, concerns about loss of wealth, loss of business opportunities, loss of friends for yourself, um, loss of your reputation, loss of prestige. We need to be humble and identify these things and cry out to God that his favor upon us would be our heart's truest joy. Next, brothers and sisters, please know and believe the true gospel. Please know and believe the true gospel. Abraham was a Christian. He didn't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. He didn't need to be baptized to be born again. I want you to believe the true gospel. Listen now, you cannot be forgiven of your sins through any action of your own. And you are sinful in a way that brings God's wrath and curse upon you. And you are sinful in a way that you cannot overcome. There is a mountain of sin within you that's only purpose is self, self, self. And you will refuse God in your flesh. You will hate God in your flesh. Your flesh wants to run your own life. Your flesh wants to justify your own source of righteousness. Your flesh will lead you into pride and unbelief and tremendous selfishness. And there's no hope for you to deliver yourself from it. But that's okay. And in fact, that's good news. Jesus delivered you from your sin when he died upon the cross. And upon that cross, we are told that our sin was placed upon Christ and all of the judgment and wrath that we deserve from God, the Father poured out on Christ for us. All of our sins, all of our sins and all of God's wrath done away with in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is boasting in the cross, brothers and sisters. Boasting in the cross. Reveling in the cross. Rejoicing in the cross. Looking to the cross. Staying at the foot of the cross. All the days of your life. Please rejoice. Because our salvation is a gift of God's grace to us. And it is given by promise. It is given by promise, not by works. And God gives us faith to believe the promise and we become recipients of all the treasures of heaven in Christ. These are ours. All the blessings that were promised to Abraham 
have come to us in Christ. And we are blessed to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. This is the true gospel. Whereby we love his law. And we rise up in loving our neighbors and loving the Lord. Oh, may we trust in Christ and be forgiven of our sins. This is in contradiction to self-reliance. This is in contradiction to man-made religion. And this is in contradiction to autonomous ways of thinking. It's also in contradiction to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and other false religions that bring in works and add works so that we can be forgiven through faith plus works. Finally, brothers and sisters, please understand the purpose of God's good law. God's law cannot bring us forgiveness of sins. God's law cannot sanctify us. God's law cannot give us a heart to obey. So what is the purpose of God's law? Well, we saw the ceremonial law was to point to Christ. And that's done away with. But the moral law persists. It is to convict of sin for all those who are outside Christ and for those of us who are Christians to convict us of our sin. The law of God shows us our sinfulness. It shows us that we hate God and that we don't love our neighbors. And for those who are in Christ, the law serves as a guide to know how to love our neighbors and to know how to love God. The law of God, the Ten Commandments given to us Help us to know how to love God and to love others. Otherwise, we'd be left to subjective concepts of what love is. But the Lord shows us in his word. And finally, the law of God is given as a guide to civil law. The eternal moral law of God also teaches our elected officials how to make good laws and to honor Christ. So may the Lord bless us as we continue forward in the study of the Jerusalem Council, being those South Galatians, now Southern Galatians, drawn back from the verge of apostasy and drawn back into the true gospel. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. Lord, we do look to you in faith, trusting in the cross of Christ as the only place where our sins are forgiven, trusting in your shed blood, Lord Jesus Christ. We are cleansed from our sins only by your shed blood. We are brought to forgiveness only by your shed blood. And we rejoice, O God, that you have granted to us faith in Christ by your spirit, and that as you sanctify us and make us into the image of Christ, that you do so by faith, and according to the grace that you are working in us, because you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And we rejoice that you have begun a good work in us, that you will bring it to completion. Oh Lord, please spare us from heresies. Please keep us from these false teachings and false teachers and grant to us to be a place filled with your truth and overflowing with love and gratitude and worship towards you and love towards one another. At all times we ask, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.